Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So as we've been noticing, Paul is writing in prison what we're saying is an encyclical letter. So this is a letter that's going to many different churches. And the copy that we have is a copy that ended up going to the Ephesians. And in this letter, he's trying to systematically impress upon Christians the power of God and salvation and how to walk worthily of their calling. This first half, the first three chapters is this impression about the power of God to salvation. It began by talking about every spiritual blessing that God has blessed us in Christ and a prayer that our heart would be enlightened to understand these things. That God has elected and predestined Christians for redemption and adoption as his children to be his inheritance for his honor and his glory and that he has given of his spirit as a down payment of this salvation. That Paul prayed that Christians would receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation in God's knowledge. Their hearts would be enlightened to know the hope of their calling, the riches of the inheritance God has in his people, and the great power and strength which God has displayed toward us in Christ, who has risen from the dead, given all power and dominion, and head over the church, his body filled in his fullness. That was chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see that Paul laid out the need for salvation, how God accomplished salvation in Christ. And how we obtain that through faith. And also the reconciliation that God has secured for all men in Jesus. That Christians were dead in their trespasses. Walking in the ways of Satan like the rest of the world. But in his rich mercy, God saved Christians through, by grace through faith. 
displayed in Jesus that we could do the works that have been prepared for us to do in Jesus. That the, those of the nations, which is most of us, were alienated from God and his people. But Jesus broke down those divisions between Jewish and Gentile people by killing the hostility on the cross, made them into one person in his body, and now ha- all have equal access to God through the Spirit, that all are fellow citizens of the household of God, and they're being built by the Spirit into a temple in which God may dwell. And so now Paul is going to conclude this first half by setting forth in much more explicit terms this mystery of what God has accomplished and he prays that Christians would profoundly know the deep love of God that has been manifest in Jesus. Now as we get into chapter 3, chapter 3 seems to be very odd in the way that it's framed. And especially the first verse, because Paul kind of says this thing, if you notice, and then he kind of repeats himself a little bit in verse 14. And he seems to change his subject a little bit. Uh, again, some people wonder what this might mean. The best explanation is that Paul, really after writing chapter 1 and 2, intends to conclude, for this reason, with his uh, doxology and prayer. That's in verses 14 through 23. And so he begins writing that way. But then he feels compelled to first, before he does that, go on what we consider maybe an aside or a tangent, which really isn't. It's kind of an explanation, making more explicit this gospel mystery here that he's been talking about in, in previous chapters. So Ephesians 3.1 kind of begins this lead into the prayer, then we have this kind of fuller explanation of the mystery, and then we get into this prayer itself. Uh, Paul here is considered a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. Uh, he's in prison because he has gone out to minister to the Gentiles, very vividly and powerfully said here. Because in Acts 21 we see, uh, why is he in prison? Well, because the Jews of Asia saw him go in the temple, thought he brought in Trophimus the Ephesian, had issues with him from everything he had been doing and preaching to the Gospels, and their jealousy led them to accuse him, try to beat him and kill him, and that is the whole reason he's in prison. So very much it is this burden of ministering to the Gentiles that has led to his actual reason in prison. But even beyond that, in all of his letters, Paul seems to have this idea that his imprisonment is a way that he is suffering in a way that will lead to the glory of the Christians, that it is for the Christians, uh, that somehow it's being taken out on him and not on them. Uh, There's some fruitful uh, areas of meditation in, in faith there. Uh, how that could be, kind of discomfort some of our theology about suffering and things of that nature to consider that. Regardless, from verses 2 to 13, Paul is now going to really describe what he calls the economy of grace given to him, Uh, the stewardship he's been given, that uh, he has learned by revelation the mystery of Christ. This was not made known in previous generations, but it's now made known and revealed through the apostles and prophets in the Spirit, And this is that the Gentiles of the nations, their fellow heirs, fellow citizens, and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ in the gospel in in verses 3 through 6. Paul is using oikonomion in Greek many times here. He uses Ephesians 1.10 to talk about kind of a plan slash dispensation. But here it's not really about a plan as much as a stewardship. You know, what is an economy? Well, that what you hold in in stewardship and using. Um, And that's where that word has it here. So, Paul is entrusted with this mystery, with this message. 
The mystery is mysterion. We've just taken the Greek word mystery, transliterated it, and behold, we have our English word. And mystery, we like to think of a lot of times as, you know, your uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, right? Where through cunning and ingenuity, Sherlock is able to solve uh, the mystery uh, that was something opaque and hidden. And unfortunately, that has kind of influenced how we've looked at mystery here in the Bible. Because it is something that needs to be unveiled. Just like a mystery is something you need to unravel, right? But the way of unveiling here is that God makes it known in Jesus and through Revelation. And we're going to see that in a second. But first he actually identifies the mystery. This is one of the rare places where it comes out and says what it is explicitly. What's the mystery? Gentiles are sukleronoma, susoma, and sumatoha. Fellow heirs, fellow body members, fellow promise people. I use the Greek there to show that Zeus is that with preposition. So it's kind of that joint. They're all demonstrating that Gentiles are now fully incorporated into the people of God as Gentiles. When Paul says that it was not made known to previous generations, that's kind of a slight understatement. No one saw this coming. Even after Jesus died and is raised again, and Peter and the apostles are proclaiming the gospel to Jews, it was not obvious to them that it was also going to go to the Gentiles. If you go back to Acts chapter 10 and 11, you can see how much it had to get beaten into Peter and the rest of the Jews that, yes, God is now providing full access to the faith to Gentiles without them first becoming Jews. And even that wasn't enough for a lot of Jewish Christians, which led to the whole Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. And even that wasn't enough for a lot of Jews who go out and start proclaiming in all these Gentile churches, yeah, you've got to become Jewish if you want to be saved. And Paul has to spend much of his ministry, many of his, his letters, thoroughly refuting this to show that, no, this is this powerful demonstration of God's grace and mercy in Christ. No, 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 no. We did not obtain this promise through our works of the law. The works of the law did not lead us to this. It was a promise of faith. And now in Christ, God has opened that promise of faith to everybody. It was not what anybody was expecting. Now that we see that, though, we can kind of look back and see the different places where we can put that together, right? And that's where it's the power of God, is that we see all of the building blocks are there, but the way that that building was constructed is not the way any human would have constructed it. And it's very important to notice that it's not just that it was revealed. It was revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, by the Spirit. So that, again, Jesus lived, died, raised again in power, all that happened. Absolutely, amen. But even beyond those things, it had to be interpreted. And it was interpreted through the apostles and prophets. And here, you know, we looked at chapter 2 and verse 20 in those prophets. We can say, is it new covenant, old covenant? We kind of said yes. Here, you can kind of still say yes, but you kind of can see the emphasis on these new covenant prophets. These prophets of the first century who proclaimed the gospel through inspiration. Uh, they were not eyewitnesses like the apostles were eyewitnesses, but things were made known to them as well. We have every confidence to believe that we have the record of all these things that we need to know here in the scriptures, but there's a reason why he mentions these people, because this isn't information that you're just going to get naturally. It's not intuitive. It's not even the automatic conclusion of the story what Jesus did. This had to be explained by God. 
And that's what it means it's a mystery. God had to pull the curtain back. And we're going to talk about what the implications of that in a few minutes. Now, in verses 7 through 9, Paul is made a servant or a minister of this gospel. And if he considers himself the least of all the holy ones, but he's given the grace to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ among the Gentiles so all could see the oikonomia again of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, Paul has often spoken of himself in the subordinate term, right? Because he used to be a persecutor of the people of God, and he needed to have a blinding vision to come to the faith. Uh, we see him talk about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Timothy 1, and here as well. And in fact, it is that dramatic conversion he experienced in Acts 9 that probably does undergird why Paul is always talking about this riches of grace. Because he had a profound experience with that richness of grace. Uh, and was thoroughly indebted to it, and that comes out in his emphases here. The servant or minister is Greek diakonos, which can mean servant. Uh, sometimes it becomes deacon when it becomes the office of deacon, but that's the term used here uh, for a servant or minister. And um, he emphasizes grace again. We see this throughout the riches of Christ. Uh, all of that's there. Colossians 2 talk about how Jesus is a treasury of all wisdom and knowledge and things that were to be grounded and rooted in Christ because in Christ is everything. That riches theme there is there for a reason. Uh, here we use oikonomia. This is again economy like Ephesians 1.10 as planned dispensation. Uh, God kept this plan hidden and he opened it up at the right time. And that's demonstrating is through his power. And again, very important. By his power. This is not, ooh, look, humans figured this out, and now look at what God has done. No, no, no. God has unveiled. This is all through the working of God. This is not based upon the ingenuity of man. A points Paul will stress also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 very, very hard. So, that's the mystery. It's a powerful mystery. But it's not just made known among people. It's not just a human gospel. Because Paul says also that God is making it known to the principalities and powers in the heavenlies. His manifold wisdom. He's displayed his manifold wisdom in the church. Which was his purpose that he, it was an eternal purpose he had in Christ Jesus. And it is through Jesus we have boldness and access and confidence through our faith in him. Because of that, Paul does not want them to lose heart over what he is suffering for them, which is his glory. Which kind of ties us back to him being a prisoner. Again, verses 10 through 13. So principalities and powers is Arche and Eclusia in Greek. Uh, in chapter 2 and verse 2, we see that Satan is probably their head. Uh, we've talked about the powers and principalities before in other contexts, and I encourage consideration there. We can't go in depth with it today. But they're likely spiritual beings that God empowered to rule over aspects of the creation. They've used their free will to seek their own endeavors. In Ephesians 6 and verse 12, these are our foes. These are who we're really struggling with, not flesh and blood. And in Colossians 2 and verse 15, Paul says that in his death on the cross, Jesus has triumphed over these powers and principalities and leads them in a victory march in his resurrection and ascension. So the manifold wisdom, this multifaceted, beautiful display of God's wisdom, is made known to these powers and principalities in the church. Well, how does God make this manifold wisdom of his known in the church? Well, 
the whole letter has been kind of getting us to there. Because what is God doing in this church? He's taken people who were irreconcilably divided, and in Christ, he has made them one man. That you have in the church people of every nation and tribe and tongue, and they all confess the name of Jesus and share one faith. These powers and principalities get their power. They enslave us because of division and fear and discord and contentiousness. In Christ, we are brought together in faith, in love, in hope, in peace. It's a radically different way of looking at the world. It is a threat to all what the powers and principalities have built for themselves. And it's God's manifold wisdom. It's always countercultural. It always has been. It always will be, no matter what and how culture may change and shift over time. Now, this is God's purpose. He's purposed in Christ, and it's an eternal purpose. An eternal purpose is bidirectional. We've already seen the first end of it, right? That he had planned for our redemption from before the foundation of the world in Ephesians 1 and verse 4. So before there was ever a beginning, God had this in mind. But if it's eternal, it also goes and it has no end in what we would consider the future. God has as much a purpose in Christ today as he had 2,000 years ago. And God will have just as much a purpose in Christ in 2,000 years if the world continues that long. God's purpose in Christ will continue to exist, and that will be powerful and important for us to consider. On account of what God has done in Jesus, we now have access to God in Jesus in the confidence of our faith. Not even just access, but in fact boldness that we can stand before God and say, God, we need you to do this. God, you need to be doing this. God, listen and do this. Um, this is a very beautiful picture here, and also in chapter 2, verse 22, of what justification looks like. Justification becomes this arcane doctrine about being made righteous, to, you know, and it, you get lost in all the theology very quickly. But the whole point of it is, you have no right to stand before God. You're a sinner. It is because Jesus has died for you, and you've trusted in Jesus. Now you have the ability to stand before God. Now you can make your request known to God in boldness, standing before him, so to speak, because of what God has done for you in Jesus. And as we said, all of this is to so, hey, I'm in prison, don't be distressed, don't act like the world's ending, this is the way of the world going against me, but what God has accomplished in Christ is greater, and that is that which we should stand in, and that's how we do not lose our confidence that we maintain our faith. So now, after all that, Paul circles back to this prayer. What do you say in light of the blessings God has given us in Jesus, how we were all lost in sin, but God has saved us, even though we, by our own works, but through his grace and mercy? What do you say that God has reconciled us together in Jesus? What do you say with the revelation of this mystery? He makes this prayer. He prays to the Father, who is the creator of all humanity, to give to Christians strengthening by power through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, that by being rooted and grounded in love, they might have the strength to comprehend with their fellow holy ones the depths and dimensions of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, to be filled with God's fullness. Paul's prayers are powerful and important, and they're frustrating because you've got to kind of get rid of the descriptions to see what is he actually praying for? What's he actually praying for? He wants God to provide strength through his spirit in the inner human. 
our soul, our consciousness, our seed of emotions, whatever you want to call it. If he does that, this would lead to Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith, which will lead to being strengthened to comprehend the dimensions of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And then we are being filled with God's fullness. That's the progression of this prayer. And when you see that, it's actually very parallel with what he already prayed in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1. Also, in Colossians 1, 9 through 12, these prayers are consistent. When he says that the Father is the one from whom every family on earth is named, he's emphasizing God is the Father of all and Creator of all. That in him we live and move, have our being, that we are his offspring, Acts 17, 26 through 28. Maybe quoting Greek philosophers, but it's not a out there left field idea in Paul's theology. The riches of his glory again. He keeps going back to that riches theme, doesn't he? And glory. That God glorifies his people in Christ now in part, but eventually in full. Uh, this now and not yet that is constantly there in Paul's writings. Now, strength through the spirit in the inner human is spiritual strength. And it's you know, people want to question, is it uppercase S, lowercase S? Here, the fact that the power is coming through the spirit into the inner human demonstrates that that spirit there is the spirit of God. And that spiritual strength is provided by God through the means of the fact the spirit is dwelling in you as a believer, and it's applied that spiritual center of a person, however we want to understand that. And it's very consistent with his purposes throughout here of using his strength. How many times has Paul mentioned God's strength here and will continue to do so? Um, it's consistent with his purposes, but this is something that Revelation itself doesn't do. You don't get strength from reading or looking at words on a page. That spiritual strength is something God is doing through his spirits that the message of Revelation does not itself do. And in terms of the spirit dwelling, we already saw that in chapter 2, chapter 1. It's also in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, 1 Peter 2. Uh, it's woven throughout the New Testament. So it means that Christ will dwell in the heart through faith. And well, ah, well, is it the spirit or is it Christ? Well, here's the thing. Uh, the Lord Jesus is still in his body in the resurrection in heaven, right? So it's a representative dwelling. And how does Christ dwell with you representatively in Romans 8, 9 through 11? Through his spirit. And the idea of that is that you're sharing in this relationship with Jesus. That God has, Jesus has come to make his home with you in John 14, uh, 1 through 3, 20 through 23. That now that he is in heaven and he has provided the access that we become part of the Father's house, that he dwells with us. He dwells with us by means of the Spirit uh, through faith. And that will be rooted and grounded in love. These images are over and over again. In Colossians 2, Paul will say the whole point is that we're rooted, rooted in Christ. And grounded in all things in Christ. And of course, Christ is God. God is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 John 4, 8. So this all flows together. We're rooted and grounded in Christ. We're rooted and grounded in love. And then we have this colossal contradiction in terms. Paul says that rooted and grounded in love, he will give you the strength to discern the dimensions of the, unsur of the, no of the knowledge of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. How on earth can you learn the dimensions of something that surpasses knowledge? If it surpasses knowledge, by definition, you cannot understand its dimensions, right? Because it's beyond what you can think. And that is exactly the point. Paul wants you to sit in that contradiction in terms. Because it makes no rational sense whatsoever, but in the eyes of faith, it makes complete sense that we are to be overwhelmed that the breadth and depth of Christ's love is fathomless. You can never plumb its depths. 
And the more that God strengthens you to see that, the more that you live in that, the more you realize just how profoundly deep that is beyond your understanding. It's to overwhelm you with humility and gratitude so that you dedicate yourself to his purposes. Just like his prayer in Ephesians 1. Just like we keep saying even the process of our salvation, Ephesians 2 and Titus 3. All of this is working to that same end. And the more that we understand God's love in Christ, the more we are filled with God's fullness, the more of God there is in us, the less of the world. Over and over and over again. And the end of this prayer is a doxology. A declaration of praise of God. And when, when Paul does that, it's not just to tell you how great God is and that, as if God needs to hear that. Paul tends to do this in ways that help us understand some things. And the idea is that God is to be glorified in the church and in Christ for all generations forever. That he is the God who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think by the power at work within us. That's a profound doxology. God is able to do anything beyond we could ask for or even think of. Isaiah 55, right? As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's not that we don't know that. We know that. But it's always good to be reminded of that. Beyond even what we can think. The human imagination is almost infinite. And whatever you can imagine, God can do more than that. But it's not just that God can do more than that, which is kind of cool, right? He's able to do more than that by the power of which is at work within you. God's power is not out there somewhere. Well, it is. But it's also here. It's with you. It's in you. It's through you. It's for you. And that's what Paul's really hitting them with. They all know if he's God, yeah, he can do beyond all we can ask or think. But that ability, that power is at work within us. And we'll talk a little bit in a minute about the, what that means. And at the conclusion, all we can do is say, Amen. Praise God for reconciliation in Christ, the revelation of the mystery of Christ, the profound love that he has manifested in Christ, and the great power with which he works to save in Christ. But what are we supposed to take from all of this? How are we supposed to understand how Paul ends this? And there's a lot we can take. Let's take a few highlights, and we will conclude this morning. Paul felt clearly that it was right and necessary to become explicit about the nature of this mystery of the gospel in Ephesians 3, 1 through 9. He seems to go on an aside. You know, we always think of that as a bad thing. And sure, if you've been in Bible class, you know how many weeks you've been on it in an aside or tangent. You've known some preachers who go off in the wilderness and never come back, right? Paul doesn't do that a lot. But Paul felt the need to do that here. And it's really important for us because it helps us understand how God's mysteries work. And again, a mystery is something that needs unveiling. And it's so easy for us to sensationalize that and to say, ah, ah, aha, there's this thing God hid, see? But let me tell you, I've done all this footwork. I have gone to these places and I have looked at these texts and I have learned these things and I went through this crazy adventure and I discovered this relic and I'm Indiana Jones now, and look, I've learned this thing, right? That when we think there's a mystery, we've got to solve it through our cunning, our ingenuity, our innovation. And how many times you turn on the TV or the internet and 
this is the story they don't want to tell you, right? There are these extra books that they took out of the Bible. This whole thing is a big conspiracy set up in the Council of Nicaea, right? That they're hiding these things from you. The whole idea of the Gnostics were, ah, yeah, you believe those Gospels. See, those Gospels, you've got to have the code to understand the secret knowledge there. And we've got the code to get the secret knowledge, and then you can know it, nobody else can know. And of course today, the big one is, well, you see how in Russia we've got these helicopters and these things. This is going to lead to how it's going to happen in Israel, and it's going to lead to the returning of Jesus and the dispensational premillennialism that everybody seems to lost their mind over. You know, it's interesting, it's been 20 years since the whole left behind phenomenon, and so many people still believe all that stuff, because it's become such a part of a lot of American evangelicalism. And there are still those people online, those Maybe you have a relative. I have relatives. You have relatives, right? You got those relatives who are really trying to figure out when the rapture's happening, right? All of that's that same thing. We'll figure this out by human ingenuity. But the whole point that Paul says is, the only reason you know any of this is because God made it known. This isn't a, hey, let's go use our human inventiveness to figure this out. It's like, no, be quiet and listen to what God has made known through his apostles and the prophets. And this is God's great power in unveiling this mystery. Nobody in Second Temple Judaism put the story together this way. Nobody. No Pharisee, no Sadducee, no Essene, no great thinker, no great writer. Even the apostles didn't put it together this way, friends and brethren. They went to proclaim it to Israel. They thought it was all for the Israelites. And they had to be told in very blunt terms, through a vision, through explicit exhortation, through a thousand different ways, Nope, God has brought the Gentiles in as Gentiles. No Jew even wanted to be that way. This was, no one wanted this. No one asked for this. This is not the way it was going to go down. Because think about it. In Acts 2-15, through 15, what if Jesus hadn't appeared to Peter with that sheet and all those animals on it? Peter would have no reason to think he should go take the gospel to Cornelius, would he? It required Jesus' intervention to teach, to make known through the Spirit exactly how this was supposed to go down. It took all of these things for it to happen that way. So we aren't supposed to think, ah, through my human inventiveness, skill, and cunning, I will come to an understanding of what God has done. God has already made his truth known in Jesus through the Spirit, through the apostles and prophets. We have the record here. Yes, we are to use our natural intelligence and skills and humility and gratitude to make sense of what he has made known, according to the Spirit, through the apostles and prophets. Absolutely. But it's not because we've gone and done all this digging that we figured it out. It's because we are making sense of what God has already unveiled. And we need to always keep that in mind. In Ephesians 3, 10 through 11, this is one of those passages you use over and over because it's really profound and astonishing principles. That God has an eternal purpose that he purposed in Christ, that kind of makes sense. We can make sense of that, right? But that the eternal purpose that he had in Christ is made known to all of these really strong powers and principalities out there through the church. All of that makes sense until we get to the church part, right? Because if it's the church part, the church part becomes... Us. And how is God demonstrating his manifold wisdom through us? 
Well, the idea is it's an assembly of people among nations and tribes, ethnicities and classes that glorify God in one voice. That's God's display of self-sacrificial love. Because what put all that together? Jesus on the cross. What is the only thing that could have put all that together? Jesus on the cross. Is that the way the world works? Nope. Is that how the forces of this world work? Nope. And there are some who profess Christianity who think the church is some kind of cosmic accident. Like, oops, God didn't do it right the first time, so now we have the church for a while until God gets it all sorted out. Or other people are like, eh, I don't need the church. I can be a great Christian without the church. Well, you know what? Yeah, the church is imperfect. No argument there. Do you know how I know it's imperfect? I'm in it. And so are you. That's how we know the church is imperfect, right? But God is perfect. And he has power that he's working to display his wisdom through us imperfect creatures. I will never understand that as long as I live. But I have to be grateful for it because that is why we have life. That is why we are called to be joint participants in what God is accomplishing in Jesus. And it's something that continues. Among our people, there's been an infatuation with rationalism over the years. And it leads a lot of Christians, unfortunately, to a position of almost Christian deism, which was God set everything in motion, God set it all up in the first century, and then he's just let it run ever since. You can be forgiven for thinking that some people basically think God sits on the sidelines watching as his people fumble through. Uh, and that's how this all goes down. But Ephesians 3, 10 through 21 is very much opposed to this. Because it says God has as much a purpose in Christ now as then, because it's an eternal purpose. And he's accomplishing his eternal purpose through his power that he is working through us. There's nothing in this passage that is restricting it to Christians in the first century. What is true then is as true now. It's the whole point of it being an eternal purpose. That he is still profoundly, powerfully working to display his manifold wisdom, the powers and principalities, right here and right now. Because in the body of Christ, we are part of something far greater than ourselves. And we're participating in a witness that has endured for millennia. And it's a witness that is of the greatest consequence to this creation. And God would powerfully work through us for his glory and honor. And that's why he has this whole prayer thing, right? That we can comprehend through the power he gives us this dimensions of the unknowable, unsurpassing knowledge of Christ. When we think of knowledge, we think of things that we can possess. Facts. I figure out this facts. I figure out this truth. If I know it, I can then manipulate it according to my desires and will so I can accomplish something for my own desires. That's what we want to do with knowledge. We want knowledge to manipulate, knowledge to control. But Paul says, here's knowledge you can't control because this is well beyond you. You jump into this dive, you find there's no bottom, there's no side, and the more you fall into it, the more you realize just how profoundly deep it is. And that's to remind us we are very small, fragile creatures. We have no right to think that we hold on to the control. No, 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 no. We are to be so overwhelmed with the recognition of how powerfully God has loved us in Jesus that we continually plumb that depth. And those with wisdom and maturity understand that if we dedicate ourselves to this prayer, and we pray this prayer, that we may know through His Spirit, the strength He gives us in the inner man to dwell, and Christ dwell in our hearts through faith, that we'll be strengthened to perceive these depths. 
that to know better that love allows us to be more grateful, more humble, and allows us to really tap into that power. Because, yeah, sure, we all know God is more powerful than anything we can imagine, right? You know there's some people who think that theologians dreamed up Christianity. That, like, the current answer is that, you know, after Jesus died, all the apostles had this experience that somehow he was spiritually raised and came up with this whole theology. Honestly, that is the most astonishing belief system. To me, that takes so much more faith than to believe that God sends the Spirit. Because who exactly would have come up with this and why? That this is something humans came up with? This is nothing humans would come up with. This is not an invented story. This is not how the world works. This is not how any of this works. This is the testimony of the power of God. God has worked in power to raise Christ from the dead, to reconcile all men in him. Something no other thing has ever done. Nothing in this world has ever reconciled man to one another the way God has in Christ. Nothing has demonstrated his great power than him raising the dead. How many people have you known that have been raised from the dead? Exactly, Jesus. That's great power. And that power is out there. And do you think Paul's like, you know, you should be intellectually impressed with this power. You think that's what Paul's about here? No, that's why we had that doxology. That God is able to do all, beyond all we can ask and think, through the power at work within us. This whole section in Ephesians, from beginning of the letter to now, has been one long theme of God's power, right? God's power, God's riches and mercy displayed in every spiritual blessing he's given us in Christ. We're being overwhelmed over and over again by the demonstration of God's power in Jesus. And all of it to the end to say that's the power at work within us. That is an untamable, unquenchable fire, isn't it? Wow. Christians need to understand that God wants to use his power to accomplish great things for his purposes through them, through us. But if God's going to do that, we have to submit to his purposes. We need to be willing to let God use that immense power through us. To do that, we have to realize that first, yes, God doesn't just have power, right? We all know God has power. Who's going to say God doesn't have power? But that he actively still wants to use it among and through his people. We've got that specter of Calvinism and Pentecostalism out there. We see the excesses of Calvinism and Pentecostalism. We say, nope, nope, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, which is true. But we can't run away and say, well, it's all on us now. We've got to, you know, tighten ourselves up here, pull up our bootstraps and do it on our own. That's not truth either. God has a power at work within us already to save us if we would only accept it. But even when we recognize, yeah, God's got power and he wants to use it through me, I still have to say, God, use your power through me. And I can't just say it. I have to actually will it. I have to submit my will to his. That's the one thing that we've missed in this whole anti-Calvinism thing where we're so scared of losing our free will. Right? The reflexive free will response. But i got to have my free will. i got to have my free will. Sure. Why do you still have free will again? What are you supposed to do with your free will? Not my will, but thine be done. What God wants you to do with it, your will, is to say, I am small. I am weak. I am fragile. You are awesome. You are powerful. I don't deserve this. But here I am, mind, body, soul. Use it to advance your purposes and be glorified in me. 
And what happens when you do that? There's no end of what God can do through you when you do that. But here's the thing. As humans, we want to hold on to control. We, we're worried. We're fearful. It's a scary world out there. And there are a lot of threats and dangers. And we just want to hold on to control. And we think in our immature faith, ah, God's got power. God's going to work through me. And I'm going to get money. I'm going to get fame. I'm going to get fortune. I'm going to get everything. It's going to be great. That we think that we can use what God's power would do through us for our own aggrandizement. That we can manipulate God's power. We still make ourselves as God. In our fear, we hold on to that control. We experience anxiety. Because we know there's all these things that work against us. But we think that we just got to hold on tight. And maybe if we hold on tight and we duck well enough, we'll be missed. And everybody else will suffer and we won't. But the whole premise of the life of faith is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. That we are weak. That we see that weakness. And we say... I am weak, but you are strong. And therefore, I'm going to depend on you. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-20, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when I am weak, I submit to the purposes of God, and I am covered in God's strength. So we need to be humbled. And this whole passage has existed to humble us so that we understand, no, God's doing great things. We need to humble ourselves to have God's power work through us to do these great things. And it's not because of anything we have done to deserve it, lest we get conceited. And so I ask, and I thank you for your patience, how much has been left undone, which could have been done, because the people of God try to trust in their own strength and not upon God's? How much travail and pain and suffering and anxiety do we endure when the whole time we could have just submitted to God's power and found relief? How many great endeavors in faith were never done because the people of God never asked for? Jesus is risen and is Lord through the power of God. That's the power that God would now work in us to accomplish his purposes in glory. May we submit to God's purposes in all things to share in that life and that power in God and Christ through the Spirit.